0: It, screw it, we're just talk about comics.
1: Hello and welcome to Screw It, we're just going to talk about comics, that's comic books, the only podcast in human history where two brothers talk about something they like. I'm one of those two brothers, my name's Will Hines.
2: And the other brother on a temporary microphone, Kevin Hines.
1: And um, we are comic book fans and comedian-ish. And a host of this podcast, and we talk about comics that we love, and we also sometimes interview people uh, about comics. And today we got a we have a big one um, author. Uh, today we have a big one, J.M. DiMatteis.
2: Yeah, this is the uh, uh, he's uh, the writer of uh, Moonshadow, co-writer uh, or scripter of the Justice League International books. He did a long run on Spectacular Spider-Man and Amazing Spider-Man. Craven's Last Hunt, uh, the Silver Surfer, uh, Justice League Unlimited, the uh, animated series he wrote scripts
1: for—he's done so much stuff. Will this is a, this is one of the big guys, and he's he's one of the authors that if you're a fan of comics, his name is one of those people that just means quality. Like you see yeah. his name on on a book, and you know it's going to be something special. Yeah, the um, the, uh, the floor of a JM book is really high. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's of course he's done lots of stuff so it's a little weird to put him in a box but i'll say that generally speaking I'm when i get a jm uh, Matea story i know it's going to be not just a gripping story but like philosophical and spiritual and uh, we talked about this in the interview but kind of kind of trippy and 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 yeah. he'll go into abstract stuff pretty pretty quickly which i love and a lot of, a lot of questions of identity and
2: yeah really last night just in preparation for this i decided to reread something of his and i picked the dr fate mini he did uh maybe a few years into justice league international's existence that keith giffen drew and uh it is really weird uh it's really fun it's got like a giant mouth in somebody's stomach and the characters are sort of constantly arguing with themselves there's a big arkham asylum uh sequence uh so it's like sanity is a big part of it and but it also like reads very clearly. It when when you glance at it, you're like, "Oh, this is gonna be. I'm gonna have to really s- sit and yeah. think through this book, and it's gonna be hard to follow." And it's not. It's like really breezy and easy. But it's it's also not like this guy punches this guy, which fits for a Doctor Fate book. Yeah, uh, it's just he, uh, he does that stuff so effortlessly.
1: It's uh, really cool. And in addition to JM just being like a prominent. Uh, author and a, and, a, and sort of a prominent name in the comics field, he's really personal to Kevin and I. He's somebody that when Kevin and I were reading books in the eighties, was sort of when he was first emerging, and so we we were there when like issues of Moonshadow would be on the rack with his name on it. When Craven's Last Hunt came out and blew, I mean, absolutely everybody away. We were amongst those people Um, when when he did his long run on Spectacular. Kevin was a was a huge fan of it and would be telling me and everybody about how good it was. So, you know, he's, 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 he's one of our guys. We, we would yeah. say that we've always liked. He's, this is a dream interview for us.
2: And I say this at JM, but like, uh, Justice International was my introduction to a lot of the DC universe. And that was him and Giffen and, you know, McGuire and the artists. Uh, so it was a silly, fun introduction, but uh, I mean, that book was good. That book was good on a lot of levels and we J-L-I. talked about it in past seasons. So, you know, we love it.
1: Um, You'll hear in this interview, we just finished it, but he's just a really friendly guy. He's, um, Super he's really nice. funny. Um, he's proud of his work, but he also is, uh, it's not like he makes fun of it, but he just is a jovial person. He's 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 got a, a real light energy about him that was fun, fun to talk to.
2: He's humble without being sort of dismissive of what he has accomplished, it seems.
1: Yeah. Um, and he's still a fan. We talked about this in the interview, but he's got a lot of enthusiasm for the things that he consumes whether it's comics or books or movies or anything and uh you know i think that enthusiasm definitely comes through in his stories and it comes through when we're talking to him and we talk
2: with him about silver surfer number three this is the original silver surfer series that stan lee wrote with john buscema buscema
1: we don't know know. um
2: the first appearance of mephisto mephisto Mepahisto, Mepahisto.
1: Yeah, um, behi- Mepahisto, I
2: think. Uh, which I had never read before. It was like a 40-page story. I didn't realize they were so long. Yeah. Uh, it's on Marvel Unlimited if you want to follow along. it's uh, We don't go page by page, but it's a really cool issue and you should read it.
1: Yeah, I've always heard about Stan Lee's passion for the Silver Surfer, but I've, I don't think I've really ever read that original series. So it was fun to get to read that. And it was really fun to hear JM talk about what he liked about it. He read it as a kid. Yeah, uh, but it's he, but it's one that he picked. It still still means a lot to him.
2: And he really lit up talking to us about it. So uh, it means a lot to him still. I'm glad he picked it. It was a really cool pick. He was he said he was also considering some FF issues that we've read a number of times. It was really great to read something I'd never read before.
1: Yeah, he, used to, he was thinking about picking this man, this monster. Obviously, a great pick uh, yeah. and that he loves the original Galactus run on FF. Also terrific. But yeah, yeah it was fun to do something just slightly off the beaten path. Mm-hmm. Um, we get into a little Beatles talk here and there that we slip yeah, he into. He tantalized
2: that. you with a John Lennon story Said and he met John he Lennon to
1: refused you? to tell me, you know what? And I respect him for that. <laughs> uh, keeps me interested. Leave him wanting. He's, that's more. for him.
2: That's for him. He's never going to tell you that story. He's going to keep you wanting.
1: And, uh, he, he, he does these plugs at the end of the interview, but he's coming out with some, uh, some Spidey stories about Ben Riley.
2: he's doing a Spider-Man Ben Riley series, uh, in the near future.
1: Um, The Ben Uh, Ben Riley clone saga has been much maligned sometimes by fans, but there also is really good stuff. And J.M., one of the best writers in the biz, was one of the people who worked on that. So I think he's excited to go back to that character. Even people who dislike the clone saga
2: cite two things to me that they say were good in the clone saga. One is, and he mentions this in the interview, is Spider-Man The Lost Years, which he did with John Romita Jr. about Ben Riley before he reunites with Peter Parker in the series. Yeah. Yeah. and then the other thing is the death of Aunt May, which I think is amazing. Spider-Man 400, which happened in the Clone Saga, people cite that as so good that they didn't want Aunt May to come back because it was such a great send-off for her character. I think yeah. she has since died at least one more time. Um, <laughs> so even within this sort of questionable quality storyline, people loved his contributions to it. He can't he can't turn in bad stuff, no matter what he does. So and we tried. We tried to make this interview bad. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we tried to tank it. We tried but, to bring uh, him down to our level. <laughs> and he, uh, he's still really great in it. So uh, we uh, hope you enjoy it. So here's the interview. So JM, thanks so much for joining us. Um, it is my pleasure
2: to be here talking to
1: you guys. Um, this is kept,
2: uh, very exciting. Uh, I feel like I think Justice League International uh, was my entryway into modern DC comics. I'd read some reprints as a kid. So this is very exciting to have you on. Uh, I then went on to read lots of your other stuff, but I, that, that was sort of my introduction to, I was saying this to Will recently, that's like where I learned what the fourth world was, as well as a lot of these characters. It was um, a great tour. You, a very skewed, you got a very skewed version of it all though, didn't you? <laughs> oh, it certainly <laughs> did. Um, uh, then I had to read the grim and gritty uh, stuff that was going on in the background and it was, uh, shockingly different, but uh, you know, right, it was still. Right. I, I knew those characters. All of a sudden, like I knew who Darkside was and right, Barda, right. and characters that I have no business knowing at that age. Right.
1: And um, yeah, you're one of our favorites today. I'm like, like I was telling you before we started recording, my brother and I started reading comics in the early '80s, and um, the comics we read of yours in the '80s and then '90s are just some of our favorites then and now. And you were, you've always been on our top list of, oh, wouldn't it be great if we could corner this guy and talk to him a little bit? And uh, we're glad that the fates have uh, let that happen. So,
0: Well, time's up. I got to go. I'm really sorry.
1: <laughs> you got his compliments. <laughs>
0: um,
1: all right. So the first thing we like to ask our interviewers is we want to hear about you as a fan. Like, you know, you've been a professional for all these years and a writer. How, how are you, what are you like as a fan of, comics? What's your story actually as a fan?
0: You know, I've said this to people before. Um, I don't remember a time when comic books were not around in my life. Like some people go, this is the first comic I ever read. I think part of it was just the culture then. You know, you walked to your local candy store, you walked here, you walked to the drugstore, wherever you went, there were comics, they were easily accessible. They were everywhere. So it wasn't like, I must go to the comic book shop and discover comic books for the first time. They were just and kids, you know. When I was growing up in the '60s, when I was a kid in the '70s, um, everyone read comics. That was just the deal. Every kid that I knew had a comic book in their hand, you know. Then they all got older and they stopped reading them, and I kept reading them. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I can but, you relate know, to that. So you know, so I. What I do remember is, and I think it came from a cousin of mine, but I can't swear where they came from. Someone gave me a big stack of them. Now, it might have, you know, seemed like a, a million of them. They were probably, could have, maybe there were 20 or 25 comics that they gave me. Right. And I remember, and I must have been five or six years old, laying them out on the floor, all the cover, you know, neatly. And to this day, nothing nothing sort of gets the chemical dropping in my brain, the time travel chemical, more than looking at the cover of an old comic. Mm. You know, it's something about. I look at that cover, and this chemical drops, and I, I am back in time, and I'm perceiving that image the way that I perceived it when I was six or eight or twelve or whatever it was, and I find that very, very magical. Do you remember Which what think, comics they were? I don't. I do. You know, I, ha, I I don't know if I'm right. I think they were Marvel and DC, but it was very early Marvel. You know what I mean? So I think mm-hmm. there. I, I have some vague image that there was like an Ant Man story mm-hmm. somewhere. You know, but I can't swear to it because memory mm-hmm. is a strange thing. You know, I might yeah. be making that up completely. Yeah. Um, so I just as a kid, I just love comics. I would read anything if there are words and pictures together. I loved it. You know, I talk to my I do a writing class occasionally. Uh, Imagination 101. And I talk about this thing. What is it about people like us that makes us love this stuff? Why is it when we look at that combination of words and pictures some magic chemical drops in our heads. Uh, oh, my phone's ringing in the background. We'll just ignore that. I'm a Twilight um, Zone. <laughs> that's
1: that's a terrific phone ring. It's, it's great.
0: It's great. It's, you know. Anyway, we've now we have now certified me as a complete nerd, right? Yeah.
1: <laughs> I, you could have done you could have done nerdier, but yeah, that was pretty right. Uh, that was true. Yeah. That's that's true. <laughs> anyway. Anyway,
0: you know, what is it about that combination of words and pictures? It's almost like a drug for us. You know, we see it, this chemical drops, and we want more. And we want more. Someone else will look at that and go, eh, toss it away. But to this day, there's something about opening a comic book that is very magical to me. You know, so so that's that's my that's my history with comics, anyway.
2: When when I when I say like comic book covers, like what are the covers that first pop into your head? Like, are there a few that right away you're like, oh, I first think of this you know Spider-Man cover or this Batman or what have you
0: there's a lot of 60s Kirby covers Marvel covers from those prime years but if I go back even further and I, and 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 it's funny because when you go when you find the story it's like it's such a cop-out but there was a Batman story called Robin dies at Dawn. Uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with that
2: yeah sounds uh, but, familiar
0: but the cover was Batman. And the dawn is coming up behind him, so it's, I do good, good reason for that title. And Batman holding Robin's dead body in his arms. And, you know, I was very young when that came out. But I, I remember that cover just, Robin's, you know, now, you know, people die in comics every 30 seconds. It doesn't yeah. mean, anything. not that Robin actually died in the story, but as a kid, you believed it when you saw that cover. And I have never forgotten that cover. It remains uh, one of my all-time favorite covers. The other cover that I go to immediately is the, is the, the first issue of the, which will lead into the book we're going to talk about, the first issue of the so-called Galactus Trilogy. Oh, yeah. Great Kirby cover. What's great about it is there's no action really on that cover. It's all suspense and anticipation. The Fantastic Four is standing there. Oh, there's Robin Dysarton. Yeah. The Fantastic Four is standing there. Um, The Watcher is pointing. Everyone is looking at something that's coming. Nobody's punching. Nobody's hitting. Nothing's blowing up. But there, and I remember seeing that cover before I ever read that story. And my mind created an entire story just based on that cover, which is what the best covers do. That's one of the reasons why I, I'm not a big fan of, you know, kind of portrait covers have become uh, the thing these days, more than covers that directly relate to the story. I like story covers. I, a great cover makes you see an entire story in one image. And that Kirby thing did it. And that Batman uh, did uh, cover did it for me as well.
2: Yeah, I was going through... Um... I was talking to some people about, like, I was trying, I was trying to think, remember, like, my favorite. It was a great cover. Uh, it's all anticipation. Yeah. It's all anticipation. I love What's the, people coming? On the people on the roofs are such a nice yeah, detail. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I was trying to go through, like, I was trying to make a list of just like 10 fun Spider Man stories that were not like epic dark ones, but that were just like fun romps uh, mm-hmm. for a suggestion list. And I was like flipping through covers, trying to jog my memory. And there's a period. Uh, in like the aughts, I guess, or maybe the late aughts, um, the teens, I guess, where just like every cover is just Spider-Man swinging. And I'm like, well, this doesn't jog my memory at all. I have no idea what's in these right. issues. Right, because it's
0: generic. It might be a beautiful yeah. illustration, but it's generic. Yeah. It's, you know, you just remind me there's another cover that that I saw, you know, a month before I ever read the story. And it was John Romita's first issue of Spider-Man. Um, With you know, the you can all read, that, you read as a kid. <laughs> I think it's 38. That was very good. But it's spy it's Green Goblin, you know, flying, and he's got Peter Parker, not not Spider. In a Peter lasso, Parker, I think, right? Spider- tied that- up, his shirt's open, so you see the Spider-Man thing beneath it. But it's Peter Parker, so it's the villain has the hero. The hero is unmasked. There's danger, and as a kid, was like I've never seen a story like this before. Really, he knows who. The, it, was, it was this that car- that 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 cover set my little brain aflame. You know. And then, you know, when I finally read, I, I, I finally, you know, probably bought a back issue a couple of months later so I could 39. read that story um and, and loved it. That's still among my all time
2: favorite Spider Man stories is Ramita's first two issues with the Green Goblin. Uh, it's yeah. a
1: great issue. We read that for this podcast. Yeah. And- oh, you did? Okay. Great and, stuff. Um, it's it's just- 39,
2: actually. I think it's a 38. That's Ditko's last issue. Oh, okay. I always but- get that mixed up. Yeah. Yeah, me too. I just, I know it's right there. Yeah. We Kevin- covered the Ditko stuff and we still covered the next two. Um, because I that 39 and 40, that that Green Goblin story feels like the perfect capper to like the first yeah. age of Spider-Man.
0: That whole first year of of Ramita on Spider-Man uh was phenomenal. Cause you could see Stan was like, uh, I have to prove myself. I felt like he was really trying to prove that it wasn't just Ditko, it's me too. I can do this, you know? And he really pulled out all the stops that first year.
1: Um, yeah, I agree. Those that first round of issues is really exciting. Um how about how about now? What are you a fan of these days? That, that maybe that's a maybe that's a tricky question. I, I bet you it's it's di- it's a different type of enthusiasm once you've done it for a long time, I bet.
0: Yeah, you know, th- when I first got in the business, especially when I was working for Marvel and DC in the beginning, and I would get everything for free from Marvel and everything for free from DC. <laughs> and you know, as a comic book fan, it was like I read it all. You know what I mean? I, you yeah. know, I, whatever it was, I didn't. DC publishes westerns. Oh, I'll read these too. This is great. You know, I read everything. Um, and 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 over the years, I don't really read a lot of contemporary comics. I, I try to keep aware of what's going on out there. Yeah. And if a friend of mine in the business says, "Hey, I just did this. I'd love you to read it," and they send it to me. Great. I'll be happy to read it um, if I'm working on a project and I need to do research uh, and they, they'll send me a bunch of digital copies or whatever. And it's yeah. still fun. It's what we were talking about at the beginning. It's a yeah. comic book. I'm very happy to read any comic <laughs> book that you hand it to me. But in, but in my downtime, not so much. In fact, uh, I'll tend to go back to look at some old stuff that I really, really loved. You know, I tend to more and more as the years pass, I go back to Kirby. Uh, as, mm-hmm. as much of a genius as I thought Kirby was as a kid growing up, as time passes, uh, he becomes like the monolith from 2001 Space Odyssey. <laughs> it's just like there's everything else. And then there's Kirby looming over the landscape. Um, <laughs>
1: what you know, do you think I mean, it is about him that's so special? I know that's, that's a big question and hard to articulate. We, we love question. him too. Yeah. So it's not like you're selling us on it, but like, right. what is, what uh, is it like? Cause Kevin and I, well, yeah, I could talk about it, but how would you put it?
0: Well, I think he—he's—he may be the only person in comics that I would ever apply the term genius to. First of all, he was a genius. He was a vision. He wasn't just an artist. And when people just see Kirby as an artist, they're missing the boat completely. He had an, an extraordinary imagination. He saw things in a way no one else did. He, you know, I just—I had never read o, the Kirby OMAC, and I was reading it, and I don't think it's his best work. But there's all kinds of stuff in there that no one was talking about in the early '70s. You know, that was just popping out of his brain. Um, which,
2: which are you referring to? I'm sorry. OMAC. The one man army corps.
0: Yes. Yes. Ah. It was only like eight issues maybe. And I I realized, Oh, I'd never read OMAC and I hear people talking about it. So I just got a collection recently and read that. And like I said, it's not, it's not a level Kirby, but even D level Kirby has like (laughs) so much great stuff in it, you know? Yeah. And he just saw things and, and, and as a story, extraordinary storyteller, you know, we always have to remember that on those stories that he did with Stan, he wasn't just the artist, he was the co-writer. Yeah. In some cases, he was the primary writer, really. Not yeah. in any way to take away from what Stan did uh, either. You know, what Stan's contribution is incalculable as well. But, you know, Kirby was lots more than just an artist. If you just looked at him as just an artist, you'd say, oh my God, this is one of the greatest artists to ever work in comics. But then when you realize all the things that he was creating, all the ways that he was visually interpreting the universe, and to this day, I want to know, where did this come from? Did a time traveler go back in time and give like 8 year old Jack Kirby 10 tabs of acid, you know what I mean? What happened? <laughs> yeah, but I think he was just born with this incredible imagination. And you know, the, you know we're going to talk about, you know, one of my favorite stories here, but if I was going to pick a group of stories, my favorite comics of all time are are Kirby's New God comics. When he first went to DC, those, huh. you know, the New Gods forever people, Mr. Miracle, and even Jimmy Olsen, all of them together, just to me they're just the greatest mainstream comics ever. And the greatest explosion of ideas. I just reread the Eternals too, for the first time since like the seventies. Yeah. And, and there are enough characters and concepts in 11 issues of Eternals that you could start a whole new comic book company and keep it going for 50 years, just on the <laughs> characters and concepts that are introduced there.
1: Now you said, you said Stan Lee's contribution was incalculable. I feel like Stan Lee gets a hard rap sometimes. People there are, there are people who really like to, uh, to drag Stan. Yes. Uh, Kevin and I are not among those. We're big Stan Lee fans. I do understand that he has sometimes been overcredited and there's and an the pendulum in swings, making...
0: and that's yeah. what it is. Yeah. So much the pendulum had swung so much the other way for so long that I think when people bring the pendulum back, they overcompensate. Yeah. That's uh, what it
2: feels like. Yeah.
0: But here's here's what here's how I understand it through my own work and my own career. I look at, I know as a professional, remember Stan was the editor. And he was the script guy. So yeah. even if he just said to Jack, let's bring back Dr. Doom and Jack created the whole story. I know as a writer, how much you can do through the dialogue, through the captions, through the scripting, you can completely translate well, that's what the way Giffen and I worked. He would do the plot. I would do the script. He gave me the freedom to do whatever I wanted with the script so that I could play with things. I could add entire subplots that weren't there on the plot. I could change things. Sometimes I would adhere very closely to what he did. Sometimes I would change a lot of it. Or, or pile things on top of that. The scriptor could do a lot, but he wasn't just a scriptor. He was the editor. He, he, you know, he could say to Jack, that page doesn't work. Go back and redraw that, you know, yeah. or so, I, you hear stories about him literally sometimes cutting pages in half and putting two different pages together, which is a yeah. horrible thought to think of him cur- cutting up like curvy <laughs> artwork. But all I'm saying is, that, you know, the, the, the contribution of the dialogue guy, especially when he's the editor, uh, is is huge. Because no. he create and that's one of the things that I think created the friction between them. Because Kirby was creating a story a certain way, and then he yes. would see sometimes where Stan came along, and changed his intention.
1: Bless you. Thank you. Uh, anyway, I,
0: we could I, talk about Stan and Jack for years. It's like Lennon and McCartney. I'm a big Beatles fan. You could talk about that. And we'll, no, McCartney's a genius. No, Lennon's a genius. No, really, they both uh, were. So let's get over it. You know, I'm
1: a, I'm a big Beatles fan too. I am. Um, I yeah. want to slip in here. I went to Abbey Road. I do a Beatles podcast, and I r- oh, rented. You do? It. Yeah. And I rented Abbey Road and did episodes of my podcast at Abbey Road, which was a thrill. But then I realized after the fact, stupid, because it's an audio only podcast. So I had no way to like prove it. I was just like, but it must have felt great to you. Oh, man, I I loved it.
0: What's the name (laughs) of your podcast? We'll give it a plug. Uh,
1: We're just going to talk about the Beatles. Oh, okay, okay, I'll check it out. Yeah. I'll check it out because I could
0: talk about the Beatles uh, all day and all night. You gotta have my that <laughs> podcast too. We'll,
1: we'll get work. you on there. We'll get you on both my podcasts. I'll uh, tell you my John
0: Lennon story. I met John Lennon wait, twice.
1: Oh, stop the presses. Tell me the story. And we're not gonna
0: get into it here. Uh, right, have okay, okay, okay,
1: okay, okay. Oh man, good, come, good, what, how
0: about if good, I come, come on that
2: podcast and okay, I'll tell okay. you that story? great
1: cliffhanger? That's a good last yeah, page of an yeah, issue. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs>
2: That's all Will's gonna think about for the rest of this interview, unfortunately.
1: Um <laughs> So, but we're
2: talking
0: about Lennon and McCartney. You guys asked for Lennon McCartney, the Lee and Kirby. <laughs> you know, that's two tent of 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 the '60s for me, for my entire pop culture life. You know what I mean? The Beatles and and, and, and comics. Um, but you know, one of the great things that 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 split them up was the Silver Surfer. You know, uh, uh, yeah. Kirby comes up with this character, and again. Just as I, I was thinking about this this morning, because I knew we were going to talk about this, just the way that, you know, Stan might come up with the idea for a character, but then Jack breathes into life. Yeah. It's their character. Just because Kirby put the Silver Surfer into that story and thought of it first, the minute Stan started putting words in his mouth, it became their character. So people like to say, Kirby created the Silver Surfer. No, Stan and Jack together created the Silver Surfer yeah. because until, until Stan wrote that script and gave him that impassioned speech. And, and created the, you know, the, the the other levels of the character. So it was it was both of them. The idea started with Kirby, but it was both of them. But the story goes that Kirby was working on the origin of the Silver Surfer for the Fantastic Four. And all of a sudden he discovers this Silver Surfer book is coming out by Stan and John Buscema with an origin that completely disregards everything, basically, that they'd ever done with the Silver Surfer. If you read the first issue, completely contradicts everything that's been done with the Surfer and the Fantastic Four up to that point. Right. Uh, so Stan basically created a completely different Silver Surfer for these, for these comics. But, uh, you know, you asked me to pick a single issue comic. And, and like I said, if I was going to pick runs of comics, there's lots of things I'd pick, but for single issues, it came down to me to either Silver Surfer number three, which is the first appearance of Mephisto or, um, Fantastic Four 51, which is this man, this monster, that classic story. Sure. Yeah. Um, beautiful, beautiful story. So let's but talk about I was... Silver yeah, Surfer
1: three. What was it of this issue? You, yeah. Well, how did you? You, have, you think got this? me
0: really thinking about it. I have to tell you, I pulled it out, through it this morning, and well, what I, you know, I was, I think I was twelve years old when I read this book, um, something like that, maybe eleven or twelve, somewhere in there, depending on which part of the year it was. Yeah. Um <laughs> And uh, you could see in those early issues of Silver Surfer. I think the first half a dozen issues of that run are just amazing, and and then stand, just couldn't quite figure out where to go from there, um, but. First of all, it introduces Mephisto. If you you know, Stan used to call the surfer his version of the surfer, Christ on a surfboard.
2: Okay, and this and this is that, yeah. this
0: is the issue that completely. It's like the last temptation of Christ, except he's silver and he's on a surfboard. Suddenly, it becomes this concept that he's the purest soul in the universe, being tempted by the devil. Uh, you know, uh, uh, they don't call him the devil; they just call him Mephisto. But it's very clear that it's the devil, uh, and it's 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 huge. It's dramatic. Um, It's so beautifully drawn by John Buscema and inked by by Joe Sinnott, and you know know, the way they worked, um, you know, I'm sure Stan gave him like two or three pages of notes, and Buscema turns it into a 40-page story, so I'm sure he had a huge contribution to that story as well, and you know, and Stan is in his ultimate poetic Stan mode, which if you read it now, Seems a little corny, a little dated, but you have to take these books, like with all pop culture, in the context of when it arrived. Right. And when it arrived, I had never read a comic book like this, mm. this poetic, this spiritual that dealt with these concepts of purity and temptation and all these things. And, and what it made me realize is, you know, in my life, as I got older, my own spiritual path, my own spiritual quest kind of became the central hub on which everything else in my life turned. So it was almost like reading that comic tweaked that part of my unconscious that was already there, the spiritual the spiritual side of my nature. And I think that's one of the reasons why I responded so well to this book. But again, I, I, I had never quite seen anything like this comic before. I thought it was just, it blew my little mind, to use a phrase of the era.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <And laughs> Two quick thoughts for me. One is just yeah. I was surprised at how like forty pages, like uh, uh, for Silver Surfer, um, it's sort of crazy to me that like they launched this book with like oversized stories. Um, it's exciting. I,
0: I think the reason was I think in Stan's mind that I, I could maybe I read this somewhere. Maybe I'm projecting. He thought he was doing something that was even more adult than the regular Marvel comics. So if we put it in another format, it's going to give it more prestige just like when they tried to launch that black and white line that lasted, you know, for like one and a half issues, whatever it was, the Spider-Man, you know? Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, so I think that might've been it. And, and then, but then it didn't, it didn't sell well. Then it went back to a single issue. And if you read the second half of the run, it's almost like it becomes the same story over and over and over again. The surfer has good intentions. He's misunderstood. He fights with somebody and he ends up on his knees on the surfboard like this weeping, you know? Um <laughs> You know, but the, I think the first half a dozen or so issues are just phenomenal. It was you can see Stan trying. I want to do something else. I want to expand the parameters, and I don't know whether he reacted to the sales or whether just given the realities of comics at the time, he couldn't figure out how to get to that place that a lot of people in the '70s did get to in comics by deepening these things and expanding yeah. them psychologically and emotionally and spiritually. Um, I think he
1: just
2: step step out of his range, maybe. Maybe, maybe, um, yeah, yeah. You know, you could but, definitely- it was, but Go feel ahead. the enthusiasm.
1: Uh, I feel like that comes through. Like you can tell that the people making this book care about it a lot. And yeah. I always think that's contagious. So yeah, maybe it is corny, but even today, without the context of when it's created, I can tell this is being made out of love. And that yeah. is, that is inspiring.
0: And yeah, the writing is, is, is inflated, but it fits the story. Everyone's talking in Stan's version of, it's like Stan's version of Shakespeare or the Bible. It's like really <laughs> It's uh, everyone speaks in this extraordinarily poetic way. Um, But you know what? Roy Bradbury wrote that way, too. His characters didn't, for the most part, talk like real people. They talked like Bradbury people. And if you watch the Twilight Zone, speaking of the ringer on my phone, um, you know, a lot of times when when, Sterling, who's one of my all time favorite writers, you know, was speechifying, they were all doing Serling speak. They weren't necessarily speaking in in natural dialogue. So it depends if it suits the given story, you know, and for Stan, it suited the character and it suited the story, the pure soul
2: and the embodiment of evil, you know? Um, Yeah, definitely. You have television shows like West Wing or whatever that have, a speech that is the writer's words that no one right. talks like West wing, but it's that show works. And yeah. we don't care about that language. It, it fits that world. And that no, time. One,
0: no one talks like most comic book characters. I mean, who talks like Dr. Strange talk? used to talk for <laughs> I don't know if he still talks that way, but you know,
2: yeah. um, Everybody just quips now. Everybody has just become a Robert Downey Jr. Ish. Oh,
0: well there's that. And then there's the other (laughs) side, which is the inflated dramatic style, which I love. And you'll look through my work and you'll find that there. I can certainly do that. You know,
1: and Um, I love that. I think that also, what struck me about this issue was there's an earnestness that I really like, like Stan to me, his sense of humor is a big part of uh, his appeal in the Spider-Man books. And sometimes his sense of humor kind of makes fun of the panel uh, is self-aware and self-deprecating in a way that really works in Spider-Man, mm-hmm. um, I think. And but here, I don't know. It's it's weirdly vulnerable. Uh, you know, you, I think of Stan as this marketer, you know, this kind of huckster telling you how great the story is that you're currently reading, uh, which I love. But that's gone here. He is uh, there. There's something really personal to him about this. I feel like.
0: Yes. Yeah. And he always said that the Silver Surfer was his favorite character.
1: I, I, I drove, love seeing that, you know, he
0: drove Kirby crazy, uh, you know, Yeah, but you can um, see I mean, the passion that he had for that car for years after this book was canceled, he wouldn't let anyone else write the silver surfer for years after this.
1: But I, I feel like Kevin and I were both trying to, cause we're such big fans of yours, I think work backwards from this issue to things that inspired you. You're, you're a very personal writer. I feel like a lot of yeah, things yeah. that I've read from you, I've had that same feeling where I'm like, Oh, this means a lot yeah. to the writer, either, either not even, I'm not even talking about like a message, but just like, oh, this, he wanted to tell this story. He's excited to tell it. Uh, is that, are, are, is that hard to get in touch with that when you're writing?
0: No, you know, for me, even if the story sucks, which, you know, <laughs> it's a long, long career, sometimes they suck. Um, <laughs> but even if the story sucks, that quality 99% of the time is there because that's just the way I approach storytelling. You know, um, I, I, it has to feel deeply personal. You have to, I always say to my, my writing students, and, and I always say, I mean this metaphorically, not literally, you need to take a knife, stick it in your chest, tear it down and bleed onto the pages. You know, it has to be authentic. It has to be honest. It has to be, you have to be able to communicate things in your stories that you wouldn't sometimes even tell your best friend, yeah. you know? And, and, and so, yeah, it's very important. You got you to gotta put all of yourself into a story, whatever the story is, uh, as much of yourself as you can. You can't do, you can't, you know, not every story is going to be um, some a deep autobiographical masterpiece. And when I say autobiographical, I mean, I've been autobiographical when the words were coming out of Peter Parker's mouth, you know, yeah. but, but you do the best you can to get as much of that authenticity and that passion into your stories as you can. And Stan clearly did that with the Silver Surfer until he kind of lost his way and didn't know where to go with it. It must've broken his heart when he saw that it wasn't selling so what yeah. do I do now? Let's bring in Spider-Man and they'll misunderstand each other and fight. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. Let's bring back Mephisto for the third or fourth time. You know, um, yeah. yeah, so uh, it must have been very frustrating for him.
2: I mean, also Surfer has that inner anguish that I think a lot of your, not a lot, uh, a good portion of your books also have characters going through. I just reread uh, the Dr. Fate mini you did uh in what 87 or 88 went around there uh and that's a lot of just anguish and right. craven's last hunt has got that sort of anguish and it just that's sort of just uh, those caption boxes i was just talking to will before you came on about you would have caption boxes almost like from one person sort of arguing with themselves
0: right thoughts and counter thoughts and counter thoughts yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Uh,
2: and and it's, it's true is-
0: and that's a really good point because i'm thinking Because that's the kind of person I am. That's what I am going to respond to in stories, right? You know, it's it's like what comes first, the chicken or the egg. I often we let's go back to the Twilight Zone. I think about. I remember, I probably the first time I saw the Twilight Zone, I was four or five years old. You know, and I loved the Twilight Zone. Did I love the Twilight Zone because I Rod Serling was presenting me with a with a worldview of a of a living sort of magical, strange universe, or did I respond to it because somewhere in my heart and soul, I believe that's what the universe was. So this story spoke to the part of me that already knew that. Same thing with these stories. You know, did I, I think I responded to these stories because there was something in my own soul that was approached life that way, even though I was just a dumb little kid at the time who couldn't articulate that, um, that passion, that need to express, you know, which all creative people have anyway. But that's very much a part of me. Um, yeah, so it's, it's interesting to read something like this and now question, why did I respond to it the way I did? It's really interesting.
2: Thank <music> you. Hi, this is Kevin. I'm here with my brother, Will, and we are the hosts of Screw It. We're just going to talk about comics, our weekly podcast about comic books. And we want to hear from you. We have a slew of social media accounts, a slew. You can email us at screwitcomics at gmail.com or see us on Instagram at screwitcomics or tweet at us
1: at screwitcomics. So tell us what you think of the comics you like or the comics you don't or things we've talked about on our episodes. Or send us some life advice. You can tell that we need it. Yes. We might read your message on a future episode of our show. So thanks. In advance from screw it we're just going to talk about comics from campfire media we should have done this first but just for our listeners who haven't read this issue what's just a quick summary of what the action is in the story like what well, is the basics about?
0: It, it basics are and well, if you really look at it there's not a lot of plot going on here and that's what's yeah. also interesting about it it's a lot of great visuals but it's a lot of it's basically a long almost like biblical dialogue between Mephisto yeah. and the silver surfer. M- Mephisto cannot bear that the silver surfer is the purest soul that he's ever encountered. Yes. And he wants to do everything he can to corrupt him. Right. Uh, and he offers him riches and he offers him the temptations of the flesh and he offers him empires. He offers him uh, the woman that he's lost, you know, and there's, a, there's, as I was looking through it, there's a great scene and I'm thinking, i probably, I don't know if I'd ever seen a scene like that in a comic where he reduces the surfer, To the size of a thought and traps him in his own mind. What a cool thing. And then he can't bear the purity. Yeah. And he has to to basically vomit him out, you know, because he can't handle it. I mean, that's that's my favorite part of the story. That's the
1: most 60s part, I think. Yeah. Yeah, That was a really fun sequence. I'll put you in my mind. (laughs) Right. And I'm thinking, you
0: know, that's something I would probably have done in a story without even realizing and went back to that story. Yeah. Um, It's great. It's really great.
1: you, You talked about your spiritual quest, I think you were like, yeah. Um, and I guess it's a big question, but what what is your spiritual quest? What has it been? What do you What do you mean when you're talking about that in your writing?
0: You know, if, if you look at the themes of my writing and, you know, you don't start off, you never, you rarely, sometimes you do, but in general, once you get going, you're not thinking about the themes of your stories. You're thinking mm-hmm. about, you're letting the characters lead you. You're letting the plot lead you. You're letting it surprise you and you just follow it. But then you begin to look back. And see themes emerge. And what I what I began to see with my own work is the theme. Basic theme is, who am I? Not just who am I, but who am I in the big cosmic sense as well. So that's a, that's a, that's a question that has psychological answers. You know, what is it in our lives from our childhood on that had twisted us or bent us or raised us up and made us who we are today? And then there's the then there's you know you could look at it sociologically. Who are we? have, you know the culture create who we are? And then you look at it spiritually. The big who am I? which leads to, you know, why am I here? What is the purpose of existence? You know, these are big questions, but ultimately in some form, I think all of us are looking for the answers to those questions. But for me, by the time I was like 16, those were the questions that were burning me up from the inside, you know, that I was seeking answers to. And, uh, you know, through various internal experiences that I had, uh, I found my own answers, you know, in, in the spiritual realm, in 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 the Eastern approach to spirituality and identity and all those things uh, in, in the in the in the life and the work of, a, of an Indian spiritual master named Meher Baba. But but I love those threads through all spiritual paths, through all religions, but really more I'm talking more about spirituality than religion. You yeah. know, there's a there's a big difference between the
1: two. Right. Um. Kevin? Stopped you dead there, didn't I? <laughs> yeah, that's it. You got me good. You got me good. Well, yeah, actually, what it makes me think of is in the 80s, when we were first reading your stuff, uh, Craven's Last Hunt, and even um, collaboration on JLI, and uh, a lot of the stuff, It's it stood out to me as more philosophical than other stuff. Um, you know, the 80s is very stereotypically known as like the Reagan era, and the Gordon Gecko, Wall Street, greed is good, and Alex P. Keaton, the conservative kid is a big star in sitcoms. Like the 80s was like almost like a rejection of the 60s, except I kind of felt like you were like a little shining star to like, I don't know how to put this more articulately, but like hippy dippy thoughts kind of (laughs) like, like (laughs) trippy stuff in a way that I loved. Um, I mean, I love it anyway, but in the 80s, it really kind of stood out. You, You and Alan Moore and a couple others I felt like sort of, very overtly pulled trippy stuff into your stories that I really dug.
0: You know, it's interesting because I, I was basically, you know, when you look at the, the, the core hippie years, like you know 1967, the summer of love, I was a little fat, bewildered 12 year old kid in Brooklyn. I was not in San Francisco with flowers in my hair, you know, <laughs> yeah. but when you're that age, you're very impressionable. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that whole culture, the Beatles thing, the hippie thing, the idealism, the, the hope, really really imprinted on me you know very profoundly and i carried that with me and one of the themes that fascinates me through the years i did also in the 80s i did a forever people speaking of Kirby, forever people miniseries that sort of explored this idea you know it's one thing to be a hippie man and say all you need is love groovy give piece of chance but what happens when you go out into the world and these yeah. ideals are tested by the so-called real world and the tension between uh ideals and 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 your own life, your, your ideals and your actions is that, that there's enough material there to write stories forever. You know, um, you talk about the Beatles, you talk about John Lennon, the perfect example of a guy filled with so many contradictions. Yes. He was an absolute idealist, you know, more than any of the Beatles. He was yeah. also the biggest cynic in the group, you know, what I mean? yeah. all these all these opposites. And those are the things that 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 um, always fascinated me too the pull of opposites. When I was at 17, uh, uh, I, I read Crime and Punishment in, in high school. And then my English teacher gave me the Brothers Karamazov and the, the doors of my mind blew off, you know? And mm-hmm. Dostoevsky is all about that, the pull of opposites, duality. And that's what used to drive me crazy. One of the things that fueled that quest of mine was like, how do we reconcile these incredible opposites in life that are not just out there, but they're inside us as well, you know? So it's, uh, like I said, there's enough in there to write stories forever.
1: Yeah. Uh,
0: what
2: you yeah, oh, I'm sorry. Ahead, Ken. you you had a short run on Silver or not a short run, a decent sized run on Silver Surfer. Yeah, uh, yeah, it, it it got cut short a little bit,
0: but it, I never quite got to do what I wanted to do with that character. But I there the first bunch of issues that I did with Ron Garney, uh, you know, and then I did I had John J Muth who was my collaborator from working on Moonshadow, um did did a bunch of issues. Uh, so it was really fun to write the Surfer but I never quite got to get where I wanted to go with the character. In fact, as oh. I remember my first my first storyline that I pitched, I kept getting, you know, things from up the food chain. No, we can't do that story. And I had started the story, so I had to suddenly change who the antagonist. No, we can't use that character. So it <laughs> kind of went through those kind of things, you know, mm-hmm. and, and then I had a story that I wanted to do toward the end. Uh, I was going to do a whole Death of Galactus story, um, mm. which was going to be kind of like Dead Man Walking, where, where Galactus was dying and the only thing he wanted in, in the universe was The Forgiveness of the Silver Surfer. I thought this oh, was wow. a great wow. story. And uh, and I got a no on that, you know, and I, left, so I think that's when I left the book. But in between, <laughs> I still had a lot of fun because I love the character and I work with some great artists.
2: I feel like um, they've killed Galactus twice since then. They could have done it one more time.
0: So, well, you know, a lot of things, a lot of things that I tried to do back then, they've done since then. I was going to assassinate Captain America uh, back in the <laughs> 80s, you know what I mean? 20 <laughs> yeah. years later, they killed him. I, 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 was, I was going to have, uh, at one point, well, it was going to be either Sam Wilson or, or this Native American character called Black Crow, who were going to replace Captain America yeah. after after he was killed, and then Sam Wilson becomes Captain America twenty years later. You know, so there's a lot of things. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, I was going to do that, like in 1983. You know, um,
2: but that's feel, the way it works. It's okay. I feel like comics now are a little looser with, like, let's just try it. Let's go for right, it. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I think, yeah. I think they've realized nothing breaks. It's hard to break those toys completely.
1: Yeah. How has and, that, uh? Oh, go ahead. Go. Ahead. How's Marvel? marvel changed uh you know we're big marvel fans but we also know that it's a company with you know competing interests with like lots of stuff how does marvel in the 80s compared to when you deal with marvel now how's it changed
0: well you know i'll go back even further than that you know we, we all project our image of what these companies are so i'm a kid growing up reading you know stan and jack and then in the 70s it's steve Englehart and steve gerber and lenween and all these guys that i whose work i adored you know but by the time I got in the door, it wasn't either of those marbles anymore. It was the shooter era, it was a different group of people. And so you adjust to that. And then suddenly that editor in chief is gone and someone else comes and then someone else buys the company. So it's, you know, what I learned about early on in my career is whatever that company is, you can never be loyal to a company. Mm. It's the biggest mistake you'll ever make in your life. You can be loyal to your editors, you can mm-hmm. be loyal to your artists. You know, you can be loyal to people, but the minute you identify with a company, you're screwed because the company, if the company, and this is not to do with just with Marvel, this is any company. It's almost like this Lovecraftian thing, you know, the longer it exists, (laughs) people, people come in you know, oh, here I am. And then it chews them up and it spits them out and it moves on to the next thing, you know, and yeah. and then then the, the it morphs again and it welcomes you back and then it spits you out. And I've been spit out and welcomed back many times from all, you know, Marvel, DC over the years. It's just the way it works when you're a freelancer. So I learned, or like I said early on, that I'm going to be loyal to the people that I work with. But, you know, when I first started at Marvel, it's like, it's Marvel and we're all a family, Marvel and big glowing letters. And then I just learned, no, it's not the way it works. It's really not because yeah. all it takes is. You know, a change in -in editor-in-chief on Tuesday or a change in publisher on Wednesday. And on Monday, your phone's ringing off the hook with so much work that you're turning half of it down. And by Wednesday, uh, all your work is gone because some person had a whim somewhere and decided to change it. That's just the, and that's not even a complaint. That's the reality of the freelance life. So that's why I always have lots of things going on in different arenas and why I've written yeah. comics and TV and animated films and books and all kinds of things, you know? So, cause you have to, you have to keep all those
2: doors open if you're a freelancer. What, what was your, uh, if you started during the Jim Shooter time, what was your relationship with Jim? Like, we just hear so much about uh, uh, kind of both extremes yeah. about that guy. We're fascinated by Jim Shooter. Yeah.
0: He is fascinating because both extremes were there. I have to say I had good experiences with Jim and I had bad experiences with Jim. And there was a point at the end where I just I left and I went back to D.C. because things got very uncomfortable. But when I weigh the good and the bad with Jim, the good far outweighs the bad uh, for me personally. And Jim is uh, whatever his flaws. And let me just stop a second and say we are not. Any of us without flaws. I have, you know, we all have plenty of flaws, and you know, you you could write a book about any human being. One one version says they're a saint, the other version says they're a sinner. You know, yeah. so, so you maybe, know, Jim is, is
2: that maybe the silver surfer. I hear he's pure. Goodness. Right. I hear he's pure. <laughs> you know,
0: so my experiences with Jim overall were 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 really good, and so they got bad for a while. So what? In the scheme of things, it doesn't matter. You know, uh, and 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 I've had experiences with other people in positions of authority uh, after Jim that were that were far more uncomfortable and people that that uh, didn't have Jim's talent. Jim had a lot of talent and a lot of vision. You know, whether I agreed with this vision at any given time or not, he came in with a vision. And a lot of times you see these guys that are running the show, and I'm not talking about anybody in particular, just experiences over the years. And they're making decisions left and right. And there's no real vision behind it. So whether I agreed with him on Monday or disagreed with him on Tuesday, at least he had a vision for the company. You know, I know that there were a lot of other things that went on behind the scenes. I was a freelancer. I, I didn't have to deal with a lot of that. All my stuff was secondhand or third hand. you know. Um, so, you know, we had our issues. Big deal. It's That's yeah. life. You know, if, I have a lot if- of respect for him.
2: If someone can back up their reasons, even if you don't agree with that back backing up, it's a lot easier to accept those criticisms if they have a reason behind it beyond just "Ah, I want it this way.
0: Right. And that's the difference. Exactly. Because there are some Mm -hmm. people that are in editorial positions where it's so they can't articulate it or it's just. I want it this way, or they want to force their vision of a story over your vision of a story, which, you know, sometimes with Jim that happened. Absolutely. But, but he basically, you know, he, he knew what he, he knew what he was talking about. He had his own little rule book and playbook and how he wanted these books to be. So you could have disagreed with it or agreed with it, but you could have to respect it at the same time. That's how I felt about that.
1: We have so, some yeah. questions about some of your works that we love and some of your, some of your projects, Kevin, should we okay, dive into some sure. of those? Yeah, I'm trying to make these
2: quick hits. Um, uh, do you want me to go first? Yes, Kevin. I wanna ask you real quick just about working on Justice League Unlimited, the the not the comic you're doing now. Is that called Justice League Unlimited? It's As- called Justice League Infinity. Infinity. Yeah, but uh, it's but a, it's the next season of Justice League Unlimited. Yeah, uh which I'm enjoying. I think it's great. Um, but when you were working on that show, how collaborative the individual scripts um for that was it like a writer's room or was it sort of like you were assigned a story with a beginning and end point or- i was a
0: i was not working on staff i was a freelancer and you did you so know. many
2: episodes i know they
0: thank god they liked me <laughs> <laughs> it was um you know I, I i stan berkowitz uh and i uh stan was one of the the guys on staff uh, on justice League limited great writer um uh great guy and we had worked together on the live-action Superboy TV show. Mm-hmm. Um, he was the producer on that show, and the I old wrote... syndicated one. Yeah, yeah. I worked on the last season of that. I did a, a stint on staff, and I wrote five episodes. And now, some people don't even know that show existed. But uh, when Stan took over in the third season, he really changed that show from a kid-friendly show to a something a little bit more mature, you know. Uh, and did some some great stuff. And I have some work I did for that show that I was really proud of. But Stan, um, after Superboy was was over. Um, I, through a mutual connection, plugged him into uh, the 90s Spider-Man animated show. Stan had never done animation. And Stan did great with that. And the next thing you know, he's like this Emmy-winning animation writer. (laughs) You know, Superman, all the DCIU stuff. He worked on so much of that. You know, the TV shows, the movies, so many things. Um, And so Stan was working on Justice League Unlimited. And they said, hey, you want to do an episode? And, you know, I had done a couple of animated things before that. But it wasn't on my list to do list. You know what I mean? I want to be an animation writer, but I thought, what the hell, I'll give it a shot, you know? And it turned out to be just a great gig. First thing I did was for the man who has everything, right. the more thing, you know, and they liked what I did. I loved working with them. and And then it, I always say to people, uh, our fellow writers, always be open to the surprises to the, that the universe offers you. This wasn't on my list of what I wanted to do. And an entire other career opened up for me that goes going on to this day in the animation field, you know. So to get to the core of your question, it's all collaborative. When you're working in TV, it's collaborative. I'm not. You're not hiring, especially if I'm a freelancer. If you're the producer, it's your vision. If you're Bruce mm-hmm. Tim or James Tucker, you're setting out the vision of the show. For me, my job is to execute your vision, but to go back to what we were saying before about passion, to bring as much of myself and my own passion to the table as possible. So I'm, I'm kind of serving. So all I'm doing is, is wrote, repeating what you're asking for, that I'm not bringing anything to the table. So um, it's very, very collaborative. The whole process is collaborative. I worked primarily... You know, notes were coming from other people, but I work primarily with Stan and Dwayne McDuffie, who was just a great, sure. brilliant guy, you know. I was just been rewatching because of working on the comic, I've been rewatching and in some cases watching for the first time a lot of the JL and JLU shows. And Dwayne's contribution, to, there's that word again, was incalculable, how much stuff he did for that show yeah. and how great it was, you know. Um, so yeah, very TV, movies, it's all very collaborative.
2: Um, yeah. I watched that show just in my sort of, I consume everything phase of my life, and then I just remember watching it and being like, oh, another episode. And at some point during the Justice League Unlimited phase, I was like, this show has just become like my favorite thing on television right now. When did that happen? It snuck up on me. It got so good. And I think its legend has sort of grown over the years because I see now in the reaction
0: to the comic, people love that show. They just love that show. And and having rewatched the whole thing now from beginning to end, on the treadmill every day, you know, um, uh, it's, it really is. I, I almost forget, leave my work out of it completely. You know, the, the, what they accomplished in these basically 22 minute episodes uh, with characterization, with these great stories, with, with wonderful dialogue. I mean, it's amazing, you know, that that, that no one at, at, at Warner Brothers had the, the sense to go to uh, a James Tucker or a Bruce Timmer or one of these guys and say, Hey, why don't you write, our live action movie yeah yeah you know uh they, they missed the boat they really they missed boiled the boat.
2: those characters down so perfectly i and before we move on the, for the main writers everything that's got to be daunting to adapt that and i thought you just nailed it that episode i was the one of the first ones i showed you will
1: yeah i remember i, I love you love
2: that comic and i was like you're gonna love this adaption and it's just it's just it's its own thing, but it is such a great adaption. I think that's so hard to do for a classic like that. Yeah, it was, me and and Kevin know, I, was like
1: one of our favorite comics issues. So I, was, I kind of started watching that episode with arms folded. I was like, all right, let's see how they did this. And by the end, of it I was like, man, that was great.
0: The funny thing for me was I was not intimidated because I hadn't read the story before. I didn't know about, <laughs> if I had known about its legend, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> I think I would have been intimidated, but they said, here, read this. Oh, I said, this is a cool story, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and it was, it was a really cool story. And so, yeah. and, you know, between me and, and the staff guys, we worked out what the adaptation would be. And then the, uh, I've told the story before, but I'll, I'll tell, try to tell it quickly. Um, I turned in that this is the first thing I've done for them. So I turned in the first draft and usually you go through about four drafts of the script before it's done and they're satisfied. You know, three drafts and a polish. And I turned in the first draft and I'm waiting to hear back from Stan, and uh, and and I don't hear anything back, and like oh, maybe a week goes by, and I'm starting to sweat, you know, because I don't know, maybe I just wrote the worst script that they've ever seen in their lives, you know. So finally, I couldn't take it anymore. I called Stan up. I said, "Stan, did, did I did did I completely screw this up?" He said, "No." It was perfect, just the way it was. Oh, and, wow. you, know, you, you don't need to go back for another draft, you know? Uh, Amazing. And I was like, oh, my God. So I thought that's what it was going to be for every script. That's not how it was for every script. <laughs> I did, I, I did all, four, all four drafts on every other script, but that one was just this magical little thing. Great. But I had the same same experience with Superman Red Son when I adapted that to the animated movie, which came out, I guess, in 2019, 2020 or 2019? Maybe 2020, because just at the beginning of the pandemic, because yeah, I remember I, I, was supposed, right. I was supposed to go to the premiere and that was the first thing that set my alarms off when I canceled that premiere. I went, "Uh oh, something's going on here," you know.
2: Yeah.
0: But I, did, I I thought I read it. They sent it to me. I had never read it. I thought, "Oh, this is a really great story." But I did not know that it was again. It had this monolithic reputation because if I did, I would have been terrified. <laughs> um, it's good. So because I was Yeah, it's good because I was ignorant. So I was able to dive in with those guys and have fun and peel that well, story apart. You know.
1: Yeah, you're a legend too. So you were a worthy person to adapt it. But okay, um, thank you. How about um. What's, what's craven's last hunt um, I'm, i know you've been asked a million times i don't remember about that, that one which one was
2: that <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, I, I know that's one of your more um i guess you what, what one of your biggest claims to fame is is writing that but For Kevin and I, it's special also just because we were kids. We read it as it came out. It just came out. You know, we just bought the issues every month and along came Cravens uh, every week for Spider-Man. And it blew us away in the moment. And it's one of those lucky things that we got to experience as it came out. And then we also have seen its reputation grow. And, you know, it must just be like people who were at Woodstock and then who then get to read (laughs) everybody getting excited about Woodstock. So for us, it's both sentimentally part of our childhood and we love it. So I don't know. What was it like making that? Did you, were you when you were uh, writing it, were you like, oh man, this is good. Or were you like, oh, you it's know, just another job.
0: I've, people have asked me, you know, cause it's, 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 it's reputation has, has grown with time. You know, um, it was very well received when it came out, but it's, it's, it's become this thing. It follows me around. and I'm not complaining, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, Uh, it's, you know, you hope that something you write keeps getting reprinted and reprinted and people keep rediscovering it. You know, people go up to me conventions. I just read this last week. I can't believe I never read this before, you know? (laughs) Um, but when you're writing it, you're not thinking that I I always say if someone's sitting down to write and they think I'm going to create a masterpiece. Yeah. Well, they are definitely not going to, unless maybe you are like the, you know, one half percent of true brilliant geniuses in the world, you know? And I, I don't think they even think like that. Um, (laughs) So I was just writing this story, you know, and and to go back to what we were talking about a little while before, I think one of the reasons why it has sustained, well, reason one is the brilliant artwork. I mean, if I I always yeah. say if I hadn't done that yes. with Mike Zach. And credit to Bob McLeod, too. And, and 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 even, you know, I always say every piece of a comic book is important. The lettering, the coloring, everything. You know, if the lettering, as a writer, I know if the lettering is off, even if you don't notice it, when you're reading it, your brain notices it. Mm-hmm. And it impacts the story. But Zek especially. If Zech hadn't drawn that story, we might not be having this conversation today, we'll just is <laughs> sure. another in- another interesting Spider-Man story. Even releasing me-
2: it weekly probably had some
0: effect on it. Oh, all these elements. I wrote, I wrote an intro- introduction for one of the editions that talks about all, the, all these things that kind of came together after I'd been nursing a version of this story with different characters for years before I did it. All these things had to come together. But for me personally... I was going through an awful, miserable, wretched time in my life, you know, really? one of the hardest times in my life. Um, and I think all, so all those, I didn't realize at the time, but I was Peter clawing my way up out of the grave. I was Craven going mad. I was even vermin, the part of me that felt like a small and insignificant and in the kind of the, the psychic sewers of my brain, you know, all those characters were aspects of me kind of working my way through and, and especially Peter, you know, putting that hand out of the grave, yes. searching for yeah. love, coming back to life for love, you know. Um, so again, I wasn't thinking about that consciously when I was writing it, but I see it now. So I think one of the things the, for my contribution is that those emotions are real; they're a hundred percent authentic because I was going through just what those characters were going. Amazing.
1: through. Amazing. Yeah, Can I? You know, I, please, please don't answer this if you don't want to. But what was what was bad? Uh, uh, just
0: level one was just a very painful divorce going on okay and the end of a relationship yes. which opened the door on a lot of other stuff that i don't need to get into sure sure it's just painful stuff in my life well um,
1: uh you know that's weird to say but i'm glad because it was one of the most exciting comics reading experiences we had as kids and i interesting I just,
0: and i would say if i had written it a couple of years before a couple of years after would have been a very different story yeah a couple of years after i was happy as a
1: clown did it you also know, go ahead will uh, well, one more question about it. Like, when you were like turning the scripts in, I don't. I forget who the editor was, but weren't they like, wow, this is going to be something really special? Oh, this is a little different than what we've been doing. Maybe you don't know it's going to be a big hit or anything, but it. it I it, think
0: it was very well received in the office. It was, Jim Alsey was the original editor, then Jim Salakrup took over. I was give Jim credit. He's the one who said, we can't have, because originally Zach and I were hired to do Spider Man, Jim, Jim, Jim Salakrup. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we were supposed to do Spectacular Spider-Man, and Jim said, Jim Salakup said, "You can't have this happening in Spectacular Spider-Man, him buried alive, and then over in Amazing Spider-Man, he's fighting Doctor Octopus. It, it's going to kill the reality of your story." So he was the one, and he was the first one I think in comics who said we're going to run this story through all three Spider-Man books for two months. Wasn't he the editor did. of
1: uh, X-Men when Claremont first started I like Kevin? I don't know I if, if, if
0: Salakrup ever edited the X-Books, okay. but, you know, people jumped around in those days. So he might yeah. have. What, some... what a
1: great call. What a great call on his part.
0: Yeah, great call. And just to go with saying a lot of things, if he hadn't been in, if he hadn't been in the black costume, if he hadn't just married Mary Jane, all these things added to the emotional impact of the story.
2: Yeah. a few uh, like a year earlier, he, Mary Jane wasn't even around. Mm hmm. Um, mm-hmm. um, well, thank did, you did for it feel, talking. Did about it that. feel like an adult, a more adult story when you're writing it? Or did, in your mind, was it just like,
0: that's the way I approached whatever I was writing, you know, and I also had just finished doing Moonshadow, which was my first major creator owned work that mm-hmm. I'd done for Epic Comics, which I still to this day consider one of the two or three best things I've ever done. And it liberated me as a writer, it got me out of that box of writing comics. And put me back in my mind of I'm a writer, not a comic book writer. What can I do, you know? And so after two years of working on Moonshadow, then I did Craven. So that whole mentality went with me Mm. into Craven's last hunt, you know, that I can do anything. I can tell this story any way that I want to tell, you know? So that, having written Moonshadow was an important
1: part of okay. why Craven I'm embarrassed the I haven't book. read Moonshadow. This is finally going to get me to do it. But I remember seeing it on the racks. Who did the covers? There were some really beautiful... John work. J. Muth
0: was the artist. It was the first fully painted comic book series in America ever done.
1: I always picked it up and flipped through it because it just was Be- so yeah, he's, insanely he, beautiful.
0: Muth, is, uh, he's a good buddy of mine, but he's, he's also... He's brilliant. He's absolutely... He was brilliant. He was 23 or 24 when we did that book, and he was brilliant then, and he's more brilliant now. Um yeah, uh, Dark Horse uh, in 2019 or 2020, I think it was 2019, just put out uh, a new edition of Moonshadow, a beautiful hardcover, all kinds of be- incredible extras in the back. It's it's just the best edition of Moonshadow. So if you're going to pick one up, it's called uh, Moonshadow, the definitive edition. I would pick that one
1: up. I'll do it. Good. And, and uh One we're sale. Pr- <laughs> <laughs> we're approaching the end of our time here kevin do you want to what do you want to get in here because yeah, um uh, we, t- we can
0: do like we can do 10 more minutes and i think that would be fine
1: yeah. okay great uh i'll just tell you this also JM. um so i said my brother and i were our friends and we were fans as kids but i when i i left i stopped reading comics a little bit when i got to be like 18 or 19 mm-hmm. i would cause a, a lot of people in. did yeah yeah i would dive into issues of sandman or dip back in for love and rockets or something but i What do you know? I'd read some weird artsy stuff, but Kevin has remained a voracious reader and he would kind of pull me back in. He'd be like, Oh, you got to read this one or you got to read this one, which I always appreciated. But your issues are ones he would always mention. Your run on spectacular. He'd be like, Because we were very emotionally invested in spider-man he'd be like jm is still killing it on spider-man these this run on spectacular is
0: oh that run with sal is one of my favorite things ever Uh. ever ever i'm very very proud of that run and i am still waiting for marvel to collect it
2: yeah i'm uh, (laughs) i communicate with a a a group uh, um with a from related to another podcast the amazing spider talk they have like a uh, oh yeah, yeah. chat uh-huh. thing and constantly that that run comes up as just being like why is this not it's not on marvel unlimited it's not collected it is so good
0: the, the, i'm uh, hoping that next year because next year's like a big uh, what's the 80th anniversary no not, it can't be 80th that's ridiculous the 60th anniversary of spider-man yeah it's something like that yeah yeah. Uh, that's and right. so i think i think they're going to be doing like i'm doing this bet in the new ben riley series that's coming out next Tuesday's right yes anniversary. Do you want to so I'm hoping that I, I will. Not I'm, I'm hoping that um, that one of the things that they will do as part of this year-long celebration is um, is collect that stuff. It's been collected in other countries. I have beautiful editions from other countries, it's um, but amazing. it's never been collected
2: here. It is crazy that it has not been collected because the current writer nick spencer has referenced it a number of times oh
0: yeah yeah i know he's a big fan of that run and a lot of that stuff has bled into his run you know? um,
2: <laughs> you're referencing a comic that's from so long ago that people can't read mm-hmm. That, that, mm-hmm. like a fan now is reading the story being like oh what are they talking about here like there was, right that individual be...
0: issues have been reprinted here or there you know the vulture yeah. story the death of Harry story a couple of other stories been, yeah yeah, yeah have sure. been reprinted here or there i know even i believe in one of spencer's issue they even had a couple of pages from one of the stories
2: as part of that story.
0: Yeah, it's crazy to
2: me to do that in in today's day and age when you can't, when the the reprints could just be so, at least on Marvel Unlimited, at least digitally for people to get their hands on. I love it. I'm glad I own them. It sounds work was breathtaking.
0: Oh, oh, oh my God. Working with Sal, one of the great joys of my career to
2: this it's, day. It's the amazing to level up career. like he did uh, so late in his career is to like take his art to the next level. You don't see he that he kept well. growing.
0: And and that's, you know, that's the goal for any of us. You want to keep growing, you want to keep going, you want to keep expanding as a writer, as an artist, whatever you're doing. Let me get this out of the way so it doesn't make any more noise. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, so, and Sal, oh my, you know, we had this incredible creative chemistry from, I always say from the first page, from the first panel, something magic happened that you cannot create. It's either there or it's not there.
2: I loved working with Sal. Yeah, you guys brought up the best in each other. uh, Yeah, it was very apparent. I mean, I remember reading that and uh, just, it was, that was, that was my A title. I don't remember what was going on in amazing at the time, but spectacular was the main title that I was excited
1: about during that run. Well, that's great. That's that great. sounds so like it's some... that passion again, you know, it's the yeah. oh, that, people yeah, being stories. invested in being curious and trying new things and being yeah. interested in the work that you're creating. Yeah.
0: Talk about deep dives and who am I? That's what those stories were about, especially the, the first story, the child within. Um, yeah. Anyway, Ben Riley. So I can't get into the details obviously sure. of the story, but you know, Marvel called me up and said, uh, Uh, We have this great editor that I'm working with, Danny Chasm. I hope I'm pronouncing his last name correctly. Um, Great guy. I'm really, really delighted to be working with him. And he called me and said, basically, all he had to say was Ben Mm Riley, And I was like, yes, (laughs) because, you know, uh, the the Clone Saga was a very uneven thing for a lot of reasons that we don't, you could do a whole other, which you probably have on your other podcast (laughs) about it. But there was a lot of great stuff in there, too. And one of the best things to come out of it was the Ben Riley character who I loved, I did a miniseries with John Romita Jr. Uh, called um, Spider-Man The Lost Years, which I think is one of the best things I ever did with Spider-Man. Uh, he's uh, he's Peter, but he's not Peter. He's a little darker, I think as complex as Peter is, and Peter is very complex, Ben is even more complex. So he's a very, very interesting character that I sort of hit and identified with almost immediately. So um, to return to that character, and and do this five issue miniseries it's uh it's great and it's set right in the point in time when peter and mary jane went allegedly to go off to live happily ever after in what was it portland or seattle or whatever
2: it was northwest for sure yeah
0: (laughs) i think it was portland um and and ben has just taken over as spider-man so it's the very beginning so there's a lot of space there to explore what's going on in his
2: head and what's going on in his world so So you're um, doing the era when he is Spider-Man, when Ben yeah, is, believes yeah. he is the the only—he believes that
0: he's the real Peter and that he's Spider-Man. And he, but he's had been away for five years. So how the hell do you do this? Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. What my I can't go back to my old life uh, because you know those people know that Peter. They don't know me. So I'm Ben Riley now. You know I, I know I'm Peter Parker, but I'm really I'm Ben Riley now. I have to create a whole new identity and a whole new life for myself in New York.
2: When you approach um, something like that or the Justice League Infinity book that is sort of treading on stuff from years past, how yeah. do you handle like uh, making this something that would appeal to people who aren't, who didn't watch that show, didn't read those original comics? Is, is there a trick to that in your mind or is it just?
0: I think the trick is, you know, and I'll go back to talking about Jim Shooter. You know, Jim Shooter's line was, always, you know, was, he's not the only one that said it, but I remember Jim saying a lot, everybody's comic, every comic is somebody's first comic. And you can't approach it like, you know, all this stuff Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you have to, you know, you have to approach it like it's the first time we're looking at this character. You know, obviously you, you write it in a way that the people that know the character are going to get what they want out of it. But you have to you have to set them up. You have to explain them so that someone who's never read that character before will go on this journey with it. You know, you have to approach it that way.
2: Is it hard for you to find like, especially Ben, uh, who's somebody you've written a lot of, to find like, oh, what, what's the new thing I'm going to say with him? Or did, did that just jump right out?
0: Yeah, well, this is he's one of those characters that I just kind of clicked with. So Great. it's like for me, same thing with Peter Parker. Um, it's like reuniting with an old friend. These characters become very much alive when you write them. And Peter Parker, I feel like I know him as well as my best friends and better than some of them, you know, because <laughs> I've, I've been in his head way deep in his head, deeper yeah. than some of my friends, yeah. <laughs> um so they feel like you know the characters that you really click with feel like old friends. So you know writing this book is like just, oh, it's my old buddy Ben and we get to play together now. And I get to write a story and torture him a little bit and you know and then and, and uh it's 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 and send him on this fun journey. So it's 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 great. And David uh, David Baldion, if I hope I'm pronouncing his last name correctly too. <laughs> um, wonderful artist i was not really familiar with his work before we started this and every literally every page that comes in i have david this is incredible i love this this is great you know (laughs) and to bring us back to the very beginning of our conversation you know being that kid reading and loving comics to me the moment that still brings that back is just what i just said when the artist starts turning in pages yeah i'm 10 years old again (laughs) <laughs> and that little kid goes, look at that. It's Spider-Man and it's so cool. And look at how he drew it. You know? Um, so that enthusiasm is always there is always there. It just seems a little bit to open that door and the 10 year old pops out like a jack of the box.
2: Brings you in to do that surfer story. Cause I think I want to read that. <laughs> yeah. The, the, the last, uh, the last, the last galactic story, the last yeah. Galactus story
1: would be dead yeah. man walking. Yeah. yeah. Dead galactus walking. I want to read it. <laughs> um, Hey, uh, so I think it's a good place to wrap up. Yeah, Damn, this is um, man. What a thrill. We're so happy. And you're, and also, I just want to thank you for being such an engaging conversationalist and you're, you're, you're really kind in how you talk to people. And you're, I feel like a lot of, you can't guarantee that someone who's good at being creative is also good with people, but I think you are one of those. So well, thank, thank you. you for that.
0: Thank you. I, I appreciate you saying that. This, and was, no, also, this was fun.
1: We're fans of your Twitter feed too. I love how many other things you retweet. I've seen you retweet Beatles stuff and Doctor Who stuff and you're just, a, you're a fan as well as a creator. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I well, if it. you're
0: into the Beatles, yeah, you you know, I, I have to restrain myself with retweeting the oh, Beatles. Because so, it's like, well, will anyone else care? I really care. You mean <laughs> on this day, 55 years ago, John Lennon went and sneezed? Oh, I have to retweet this. <laughs> no, you really, really don't have to do that. You know, you really don't have to do that. Um, um, anyway, well, maybe well, we'll get to talk
2: on your Beatles podcast. And maybe, tell you yeah,
1: maybe. Well, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Right, for, it's it's yeah. a pleasure. Thanks for the time. Thanks for all the great books. You're very welcome. And so that was uh, JM DeMatteis. Um,
1: I think it lived up to the hype.
2: Yeah, it was such, it was was so nice uh, to talk to him.
1: Just like a lot of these guys we talked to, I felt like we could have gone for three more hours. We barely got into JLI at all, um, which we would have loved to have heard about the collaboration with Keith Giffen, but we we didn't want to overstay the time we promised with him. Yeah, we kind of just
2: brushed up against lots of topics. Um, so maybe this is satisfying to nobody because <laughs> we didn't get deep into <laughs> no, anything. No, I think
1: it was great. It was great.
2: But uh, yeah, It was great. I think it was just great to it's, to spend an hour with JM, the fan of comics, the comic it's, book it's, uh, it's just, kid almost.
1: He's a he's an entertainer. It was fun just to see. He said he mentioned quickly that he teaches writing. I bet you he'd be a great. Oh, I meant teacher. to ask
2: a follow question on that too. I was going to ask whether that was well. He's online done so many things like. Person.
1: Yeah, Um, but if JM's your teacher, I feel like his enthusiasm would be so contagious that it would just make that would just that would alone would make you better. He called it Imagination One Hundred and One. So I'm sure if you Google
2: that, um, you can find out more about it. And will while Will talks,
1: yes. And there's so many of his works that I personally have yet to read. This interview with him makes me. I'm now going to go back and read the Moon Shadow issues that he did in the '80s. I as I told him, I remember seeing those. On the racks, they are beautifully painted issues. Um, I mean, there was a while in the 80s where J.M.'s name was on the craziest stuff, like crazy in a good way, like Craven's Last Hunt in Spider-Man, Moon Shadow. Um, There was this little mini series that he called Blood for Epic Comics that also was painted and like weird and trippy looking. And he he was like a figure in our imagination at that time. Yeah, if you
2: Google Imagination 101, J.M. Mateus. Um, it'll pop right up. It seems like it's online now. But maybe it wasn't always online, the, the course. Um, so I'm going to look into that. It sounds really cool.
1: And uh, we're all, I follow him on Twitter and, you know, he's the guy, he's not just a comics only guy. He like, he consumes all sorts of interesting art and media. And um, I'm sure that's part of what makes him so great.
2: Twitter can be so toxic towards uh, the creators, um, that I'm always grateful for the ones that are still on and still positive. Uh, and J.M. is one of those guys that just seems to be having a good time interacting with fans. Um, and I'm grateful that he's out there. It makes Twitter a better place.
1: Yep. Yeah. It's it's nice to see. So, um, well, I'm glad we did it, Kevin. Um,
2: Will, if you were going to read just 100 comics that J.M. had written, what would those 100 comics be? Only 100? Yeah, just you can only pick 100 issues. Boy, it's tough. And you can include like Craven's Let Hunt is one if that helps. Okay. Well, I'll have to get back to you on this.
1: Okay. All right. I thought you'd just have it. But it's, t- it's tough to limit it to just 100. Um, I don't know what we're doing next episode because we're doing these all out of order, but we'll have something fun. Yeah, probably our next episode will be a mailbag episode. Uh, and then
2: we'll have another interview with I don't know who, but if you want to email us, uh, the email address is screwitcomics at gmail.com. And we also have screw it Comics on Instagram and Twitter. So follow that handle wherever you go. But yeah, send us some emails and we'll read them uh, on our mailbag episodes.
1: So uh, thank you for listening and we'll see you next episode. Bye. Screw
0: it, screw it, we're just gonna- Comics. Ever wanted to hear the story of the time that Melissa Fumero from Brooklyn Nine-Nine's Kid had a two-hour-long tantrum that drove generations of their family to weep? Or maybe the story of SNL's Bobby Moynihan's Kid who found random pizza in a playground sandbox and ate it. If so, you should check out Why Mommy Drinks, a weekly comedy podcast where I, Betsy Stover, talk to interesting people like Richard Jefferson from the NBA or Rachel Bloom from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend about a time that their kids broke them down into a shell of their former selves or maybe even drove
2: them to drink.
0: But in a fun way. If you have kids, this show will make you feel less alone. And if you don't have kids, you're going to be so glad you don't have kids. Listen on Campfire Media,
2: Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Why mommy drinks. Campfire.